Before we begin our show, we want to let you know of an upcoming podcast series. It's come to light that many well-intentioned organizations and individuals in the anti-trafficking, anti-exploitation movement have not necessarily stewarded survivor stories well. In essence, the fight for the bigger picture or macro pursuit of justice has often led to exploiting survivor stories. It is the aim of Jesus Said Love to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Therefore, we are going to host a series on ethical storytelling, and this is aimed at educating not only organizations, but also potential donors on this issue. When we know better, we can do better. The end does not justify the means when it is at the expense of survivors. Now, on to the show. Welcome to season three of the Jesus Said Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hello there. Hey. I felt like I wanted to sound like Moira right there. Hello, David. <laughs> we haven't watched that in so long. It feels like it's been forever. I know. Um, and it feels like it's been forever since we've actually done a podcast where we're sitting in the same room looking at each other talking to each other and not on some zoom kind of platform oh right because the pandemic and yeah. all of our guests have been on location and all that kind of stuff so it's true and then on top of that you've been on sabbatical all summer yes we haven't really talked about that but um it was it was quite a summer it uh, was it was a lot which has led us into this conversation that we are going to be having on transition and grief. Uh, we're talking about what? Transition and grief. Don't act like you don't know. You have your book highlighted. What I are know. you doing? I know. It's just this is a topic that's not fully comfortable for me. So, And we're going to talk about maybe why that is. Maybe. Um, I just wanted to have this conversation because so much of us, uh, so, <laughs> so much of us, because uh, we are many, right? <laughs> <laughs> So many of us are dealing right now with global transitions, um, all sorts of that of movement happening on a global scale, and that brings along with it the company of grief. And I don't think that I have had a lot of language for that until recent years. Uh, and when I started putting some language around it, um, because of family issues that were going on that really forced me to reckon with a lot of grief, a lot of my own personal grief, I had no idea. And I'm really thankful that I went through that. And because I got to know grief, I got to know grief really, really well. And that is something that, um, while I had language for it, I don't think I fully gave weight of the credence to what it was doing in my body until um, I stopped. And when I stopped, um, 
it wasn't just a cerebral knowledge of, of grief, but my body was really, really crying out and it was really, really tired. Um, and so, yeah, so we're going to, we're going to talk about all that. I want to start off with reading, you know, there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to grief. Lamentations. <laughs> Correcto. Correcto. <Yes>. Lamentations. <laughs> so like, just listen to this language of lamentations. It's so important. It says, Lamentations 5, it starts off, Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. And it goes on and on and on and on. But the language of Lamentations is such a poignant example of how we are to engage this aspect of our humanity and our faith. None of us escapes it, right? I think it should also be said that um, um, grief is different than sadness. How so? Well, I think sadness is this, you know, it's just a feeling. Mm. Um, Grief is an experience. Um, Grief is... I think I think sadness good, is a babe. part of go. I think sadness is a part of grief. Yeah. Um but it maybe it's like this. Maybe grief is the hurricane and sadness is the tornado. No, no, yeah. And and hurricanes produce tornadoes and but but a tornado doesn't produce a hurricane. Mm. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm trying to be way too philosophical here. <laughs> But I will say I this. You. I will say this. I love that attempt. Well, I'm trying. I really, here. I'm serious. Like this is this is great. And I think it it's this is grief is so foreign to me. Like you know, just the whole. Um, I've kind of been on this journey, uh, even into uh, at maybe the end of last year, just realizing that our emotions, just mm-hmm. our mere emotions, uh, aren't just a mental thing. Like they're actual physical. They bring physical manifestations on our body Mm -hmm. and there's a beginning and a midpoint and an end. And if you don't allow your emotion to complete its cycle, then it gets stuck in your body. Right. And where did you learn that? Um, from lots of people. No, but yeah, let's tell listeners about that. Well, resource. uh, I, I will look the resource up. I didn't come ready with that resource. I can't remember the emotional circuit. Yeah. This this is on Brene Brown. Is Mm -hmm. that what it was? This is on Brene Brown podcast. Um, talking about, completing the emotional circuit. Thank you for helping me out on that because I didn't plan on even telling that story, but I'm reminded of it right now. And I think that so much of our physical health is connected to how we do and don't deal with our emotions and the things that we're we're feeling. Body keeps the score, right? Body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've, I've been on that journey of, okay, my body hurts. My body is full of inflammation and it's not just what I eat or don't eat. It, it actually probably has to do with un, unaddressed trauma trauma, or right. or unaddressed grief. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden... Which usually comes from trauma. Then we're thrown into the year of grief for our family in 2021. Yeah. And 
So it's all new for me, but yeah. So let's just give, we wanted to make this a really, um, personal podcast where there is no guest on here walking us through this. You guys get Brett and I, (laughs) um, and, and we're not even experts on our own lives. So we are trying to do this, um, with the help of experts. We both have therapists and we've done our share of, um, marriage counseling as well. Um, but there is truly no way to describe the year of onslaught trauma that our family was navigating. And it was like, we didn't enter into the pandemic maritally on the best footing. Like we were already looking at, um, I mean, I was in counseling, you know, I was going to recovery groups. I, um, you had started seeing a counselor. We had started talking about marriage counseling at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's not like we were just like rocking and rolling and like, you know, on a high note before the pandemic hit. So it felt like when the world shut down, I wasn't sure I wanted to be locked up in the house with you all the time. (laughs) I was like, where hell? Come on, it was a party. (laughs) It was a party. I'm not going to deny that. But it wasn't the party I wanted to be invited to. And and so I really had to um, figure a lot of things out. At that point, when we were doing our work with the marriage therapist then in November of 2020. So, well, yeah, in the fall of 2020, we discover our daughter is going through a harassment issue. We discover there's a lot of, um, she's been dealing with a lot of issues that we didn't know about, um, concerning a guy who she had felt, you know, had feelings for, and then it turned into assaults against her body. Um, you know, aggressions against language, um, aggressions against her body verbal. And so we started dealing with that. And then in November of that year, we witnessed, one of our other daughters, very best friends, Leah collapse on the basketball court. And we entered into, uh, you calling 911, me doing performing CPR. Am I getting the order of events, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you fall of 2020. Yeah. And then November of that year. Well, complete the Leah story. Just so the listeners know, Leah, Leah was dead for seven minutes. She was dead for seven minutes, 17 year old in the middle of a game. Who's literally at our house all the time. Daughter, like, a bonus daughter to us. Um, we've known her since she was two. Um, I, I, dark and light, I mean, colliding all the forces of death really coming to ravage this unusual event that happens on a basketball court that's being streamed live to the school where little kids at the school are watching her collapse, then the ambulance, then the AED, which ended up saving her life along with a host of angels that I'm sure 
were unseen. Shout out to the AED because it is what uh, saved her life. That is what, what it is, is the only thing that saved her life, That's, actually. And an amazing doctor. Yes. Shout out to Dr. Loden, who was calling the shots for that. Yep. And thank you, Live Oak, for having an AED ready and available. Yeah. Um, but it was traumatic. It was so traumatic. And if you've ever borne witness to um, a tragic road accident where you are lo- looking at how someone dies, when you're hearing the sounds that someone die of someone dying, what the body goes through, it is traumatizing. And it, and, and there are so many frontline workers who go through this. And of course our veterans and those on the battlefield who, who witness this kind of thing, it leaves you uh, detached sometimes, angry, um, you've got secondary trauma. I mean, you are then thrown into waves of, of secondary trauma to, to try to get through PTSD, you know? Uh, so we go through that in November and then we have a house fire in January. Yeah. We had snow in Waco on January the 10th and we think the world is a wonderland because we played all day in the snow and it was fantastic. It was great. And I was burning the most brilliant ravenous fire I could in our home. Yeah. And then ended up burning our house down. You didn't burn the house I down. I but sounds you... better. <laughs> sounds more dramatic. No. The coal, we had cracks in the mortar where the coals, um, were leaking through our pier and br- through the mortar to our pier and beams and unknown unbeknownst to us, it was smoldering and lighting a slow fire that then, um, we couldn't figure out where the smoke was coming from and it had gone to burn up beams under our home. It was trying to climb up the wall into the attic. We caught it just in time before we were going to bed. Had it not been for that, I, I, I am sure that we, it would have been traumatic because that fireplace, I mean, it makes me emotional just thinking about it, but that fireplace, you know, is right by the kids' bedrooms. Well, it creates a barrier between us and them. And it creates a barrier. And I'm just, while Hattie has access to doors in her bedroom, Lucy and Gus do not and in their bedrooms. And I can't imagine what it would have been like to try to get through to them. Um, had that fire been able to make it to the attic where it would have been fully oxygenated flames, um, we were spared. That's exactly what the firefighters said. Yes. That we dodged a significant bullet. Yeah. And it was inches from our gas line. Yeah. The main, the gas the, main. The gas main. Um, there is no doubt we were spared. And yet, and while we are so grateful for that, the phrase that kept coming to my mind was that I'd never seen before. I'd never really given credence to is that miracles are still trauma Mm. because a miracle means you are on the brink of life and death. Mm. A miracle means something terrible was about to happen. Now, maybe if you're not aware of that miracle, like all of us are walking miracles, I'm sure we come to close encounters with death, but to witness a miracle, like to be the Israelites fleeing an army, 
to watch the Red Sea parted, I'm sure it was miraculous. But I'm sure they were also terrified. Oh, of course. Plagues. Yes, that may have been miracle of deliverance. But I think the lesson in that is that you still have major trauma. I mean, they witnessed these things. Yeah. They witnessed the the dark and light forces. And in the same way, we did too, right back to back, you know. Yeah. Um, it also just brought up this weird understanding, I think, of of how many fires, you know, like I had lived through a near-death experience as an a toddler as a two-year-old that I, you know, I didn't process at the time, but had heard family lore about what that apartment fire was like. And, you know, going back now, I, I have so much empathy for what my parents must have thought and what they must have gone through, um, in having survived a fire on Christmas Eve that completely burned their entire apartment. Only lives were spared there. So we're displaced. We are displaced. We are in, I, I think I counted five or six Airbnbs. Mm-hmm. Our first night, I, I'll never forget our first night. We, we had a hotel. Nights. The fir- very first night. Well, I guess it was multiple nights. Yeah. But just being in the hotel room, all we had were the clothes on our back. We smelled like we had been in a bonfire because mm-hmm. in essence we were. And, um, well, we went to the ER that night because Hattie had smoke inhalation right. issues. And, um, I'm laying there thinking <laughs> what, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I don't, what, what are next steps? Mm-hmm. Like that's not in the parenting book. Mm-hmm. That's not in the marriage book. Um, what next? Mm-hmm. And so now we're thrust into this new, you know, real world life still goes on, mm-hmm. even though we don't have a house to go home to. Right. Um, and, you know, thank God we had insurance. Thank God. Um, thank God we had enough insurance. Thank God we had a credit card that had. Oh, well, then there's that. You know, because insurance had to reimburse. So we had to do everything on a line of credit that then we could be reimbursed for. Right. How did, you know, the poor or I mean, they they can't do that. They don't have access to that. Right. Um, it was, yeah. So there were, I mean, there's all these little, little things that keep bubbling up that we're experiencing that we yeah. have never, you don't read about this. You don't hear about this. So I would say this, make sure you have enough insurance coverage on yeah. your home. If you, if you own a home or if you're a renter, make sure you have renter's insurance. Um, so many lessons in this deal, but yet again, now we're out of our home. We don't know how long it's going to be. Right. Um, we're now in Airbnbs, Several. so now we're staying in strangers' homes, and that. But it was great. I mean, it was great for us to get to be together. But and so right after that, then the snowpocalypse happens. The snowpocalypse. That's right, February. That's also very traumatic for Texas because we had many um, people within our network at JSL and the city of of Marlin, who we had women living out there who had no access to running water. You know, then we're thrown into navigating um, a statewide kind of crisis of how are do does every survivor in our network who's living below the poverty line, who's relying on government housing, how are those apartments, you know, faring? Um, is electricity back on? Do they have running water? How do we get them water? How do we get them meals? Um, and so, really, it was just like jumping out of our own panic into another panic. Yeah. We've got to help. We've got to help these people. We have to help. And then on top of that, 
Our house, by the grace of God, did, the house we're staying in, did not lose power. That's correct. But our close friends all did. <laughs> so and then so, we invited them over. That was really interesting. It was fun, though. So we had, I'll never forget it. How many people? I don't even remember. And all I remember is we had six dogs. We might, yeah. We I probably, hope, I hope probably the should, Airbnb owner is not listening. We probably shouldn't say that, <laughs> but it was a crisis. So we had six dogs and, yeah. and like 1,200 people. Right. And um, it was community living at large. Yes. And there were great yeah. memories, but also that's a lot. Right after that happened, we got a message from our dear friend, um, Kathleen, her boyfriend. Right after this power comes back on, everyone goes back home. We're still living in the Airbnb because our house is, you know, still being renovated. And we get the message that Kathleen has died. Kathleen was life-changing to me. She was so near and dear to me. She was one of the very first survivors that I had walked uh, very closely with in proximity to her life and, and into the throes of some major mental illness that I didn't even know existed in the world. She was our teacher and every survivor today really stands on her shoulders and what she helped us to navigate. But I just remember breaking down over the stove of that Airbnb and just feel like I almost didn't even know how to feel, but, but then it just hit me. And all I could say was like, I'm so sorry, Kathleen. Like, I was just so sorry for the way her life abruptly ended. And I thought back to our last conversation and, um, I would never get to, there would never be a funeral for her. She was estranged from her family. Um, and yeah, never got to see her again. There would be no real closure on that. And I didn't mention the fact that during 2020, we also lost, um, a survivor named Alexis, um, who was part of our lovely community and we lost her. Um, there just were so many losses. Um, so that was January. Then we get to the spring and we, um, of course Christmas is different that everything was different that year. Yeah. But we're already in January. What else, what else went down? Was that, is there anything else between the fire, Kathleen's death, and then your dad got sick? That was in late February. Late February. Okay. Late February, he and I, I called to check in because they had gotten their COVID vaccine. That's right. On Saturday. Mm-hmm. And on Wednesday, I called to check in and I could tell he didn't sound right. Mm-hmm. And he said, as he always does, oh, it's just a sinus infection. Yeah. I'm like, Dad, this is, so maybe it's a side effect from the shot. I'm like, well, that should have been done. <laughs> yeah. Monday. 24 hours at, yeah. the ma- at the most. I said, all right, I'm going to call you back tomorrow. And if you're not better, I want you to go to the doctor. And so I call him the next day and he sounded a little bit worse. And he goes, well, I got a doctor's appointment scheduled for like three weeks from mm-hmm. there. And, um. By Saturday, he was in an ambulance headed to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And what they think is that he had COVID or contracted COVID unknowingly prior to the shot, shot, which then complicated the shots and the vaccine's response. 
And he and your mom both had it. They both tested positive. Um, but he began a downhill turn and could not recover. And so every, um, every FaceTime that we have is etched in our memories, but they are at Airbnbs across really, I guess Lorena was the Airbnb we were staying yeah, at. Yeah, Lorena the was the house Lorena. there. And, um, and then the very last time I spoke to him was here in my office, okay. not at, not at my home, That's not right. with him. Right. Right. It's, it's here. Yeah. So it feels as though, um, as we walked through literally the valley of the shadow of death, um, we were also displaced. We were wandering, it felt like, as we were grieving um, and really just in survival mode. Um, grief became like when... Yeah, it, it came in waves and it it would surprise us, but then it would also undo us at times. Yeah, well for me grief was here. Mm-hmm. There's this there's this foreign house guest who has come to take up residence mm-hmm. and doesn't speak my language. Yeah. And I don't I don't want him here. Mm-hmm. Um but he didn't, he hasn't left, mm-hmm. but he's teaching me things. Yeah. And so that's been the, the weird thing. It's like, okay, so you lose a parent and yes, that's a, that's a griefsome moment. And you're going to, you're going to deal with that, the, you know, the rest of your life. And all the well-intentioned people tell me it's going to get easier. Um, and maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. It's my, it'll be my experience to see what happens with that. But, um, I think, I think that moment has unlocked so many other moments yeah. that I was not aware of. Yeah. Or if I was aware, I didn't. I just didn't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so grief isn't just a feeling; it's an invitation. Um. To to look at some things. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading this book right now for a book club that I'm in called. Um, prayer in the night. And it's by Tish Harrison Warren. She's an Anglican priest. And she says, um, it basically is a book that tackles theodicy and theodicy is the abstract problem of pain, you know, which for centuries, everyone, you know, why, if, if there is a God, why does he allow these things to happen? How can God be good and still, you know, have all this suffering in the world? And, um, she says, I no longer define grief simply as a response to tragedy. Grief is commonplace. And then she said, I've come to see grief as a part of the everyday experience of being human in a world that is both good and cruel. Mm. And so she also says that, you know, grief isn't, um, a lot of times people say, oh, you're in a season of grief that grief is a season and it's really certainly there are times like we've been in that require a lot of grief work. Like when you're going through huge amounts of suffering and trauma that you can see yourself in this 
in a season where it's kind of blanketed over everything. There's this mm-hmm. shroud of grief. But grief is so surprising because we're not really, I think as Southerners, I think I, I think that it's oftentimes like there's this mixture of like stoicism and Christianity, like resurrection theology in the South, where it's like, well, if that's the worst thing that happened to you, yeah. or like, yeah, but it could have been worse, you know? And so there's this narrative that both of our families, you know, as Southern families that have like risen over. Well, sure. We put a, we put a high value on joy and happiness and positivity and moving forward. Everyone, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one. Right. It doesn't ever say count your, count your grieves. Is that a thing? A grieve? Grievances? Well, the grievances is different than grief, but you know what I'm saying. Account <laughs> right. your miseries, <laughs> your, your unblessings, um, your curses. But they're um, not. They're, but but the scriptures do tell us to remember. Well, sure. That's I'm, the thing. There's a whole book, and not just that. It's woven throughout all of it. Is remember, 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 remember. It's like when God asks us to remember. He's asking us not just to remember his faithfulness, but what does it mean that he was faithful? It means that we were delivered. It means that he was, or if we weren't, if we we were swallowed whole, you know, it's like he was with us even to the end. Right. So the remembrance is about remembering that God was with us in the midst of our pain in the midst of our grief in the midst of our suffering so grief is commonplace you know we've got to learn as people of faith to be well acquainted with grief so that we can practice the presence of god in all things ecclesiastes 3 you know it's the a time passage Mm-hmm. A time to cry, a time to laugh, mm-hmm. a time to grieve, and a time to dance. Mm-hmm. So you're right; it is commonplace. There's a time for both of those things, but we just, you know, it's easier to dance. I mean, unless you can't dance, but you know what I mean. And I think some personalities are probably more well acquainted um, with the darker sides of our emotions. Um, but I think that one thing that major grief exposes that is such a gift is that, you know, for, for me, before we got to this season, I was acquainted with grief. And what I recognize is that going to the very point of my pain actually provided me with a little bit of competency to handle greater tragedy, greater grief. And it's not that, you know, I think it's not that like you become a grief expert and the goal isn't just to go, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I've mastered mastered grief. grief. Like I'm fine with this. Like you can't hurt me no matter what you throw at me. Like I'm going to be fine. You're not like you're not, but I can't imagine like my, my therapist was actually telling me last week. She was like, 
I cannot imagine if you had not have had been in a semi, you know, emotionally healthy state, you had done so much work leading up to this season, this would have taken you out, like out. And I'm so thankful for that looking back. I'm so thankful for the ways that, you know, cues along the way, honoring those cues of like, hey, I'm feeling, I'm feeling emotions right now that I'm not really comfortable with. Maybe I should talk to somebody about that. Maybe I need to do a little deeper work. I can't seem to get some of these reoccurring memories or these reoccurring resentments out of my narrative, out of my head. I think I need to talk to somebody about that. I think I need a little bit of work. Hey, I think I'm dissatisfied in my marriage. I think I'm dissatisfied in my friendships. I think I'm dissatisfied in my work. Hmm. Wonder what that's about. Maybe I should talk to somebody and get Mm -hmm. some help with that. And I'm just so, I'm so grateful, but in light of it, what it does is all this season did was expose a deeper level, deeper work, deeper encounters, and really acceptance, like radical acceptance that like, this is life. Welcome once again to humanity's shit show and glory bomb. I mean, because it's like both. It's like you've got the complete circus and then you've got like the incredible glorious sunrise. Well, and you know what I'm realizing is you actually see the other better. So much better. With greater clarity. So much better. And I'm 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 sad at what I've missed. Mm, yeah. By not letting grief be a significant role. You know what I mean? Yeah, because like Richard Rohr <laughs> says, he's like, you know, maybe Jesus didn't come just to show us like God. And what God looked like. Maybe he came to show us what it meant to be human. Hmm. So the fact that Jesus is weeping means, hey, we need to weep. Like God weeps. You need to weep. Hey, everybody. It's Brett here. Did you know those impacted by the commercial sex industry are all around you? They're your coworkers. Those you sit next to at restaurants. They are your neighbors. Which is why I'm excited to say we've launched a new funding program at Jesus Said Love. We're calling Love Your Neighbors. Members of Love Your Neighbor will receive an exclusive t-shirt, a survivor-made hand sanitizer from our Justice Enterprise Lovely, and a member-only newsletter, Lovely in the Neighborhood, which will share stories of impact. When you join Love Your Neighbor with a $50 or more monthly gift, you are supporting the recovery efforts of Jesus Said Love and working with sellers, buyers, and users of commercial sex. Programs like Access, Love That Mama, Stop Demand School, and Lovely Enterprises awake hope and empower change right here in Central Texas. We have seen lives changed because people like you joined forces with JSL to awaken hope and empower change. And now we're asking you to help us reach more people. Sign up today by visiting JesusSaidLove.com backslash L-Y-N and let's love our neighbors. You know, it's interesting you bring up Father Rohr Mm -hmm. because his book um, From Wild Man to Wise Man has been probably one of the greatest books I've read in the last 10 years. And I keep going back to it. And sure enough, wouldn't you know, there is, and I've, I should say this, I've always been a little bit opposed to here's a book on how to be a spiritual man or here's biblical womanhood. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, be, these feel real, you know, segmented. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one's a big penis fest and the other is, you know, how to knit and cook and please your husband. 
And I just, I just think we were made for more on both <laughs> ends. And so this book is not that. Mm. Though it speaks, you know, it is addressed yeah. to men. Right. Um, and, and so he, I want to read this. It's a little bit long, but I think it's, it's really cool. Um, he says this, Grief, as I define it, is simply unfinished hurt. It seems to need to go through all of its labor, laborious stages. Hurt is never just over and gone. It is a process of letting go, suffering our loss, feeling it deeply and allowing it to change us. And perhaps it challenges us like almost nothing else does. Women seem to learn staging through their 28-day cycle and their nine-month gestation period. We men have no such learning curve. Hmm. Grief, it seems, makes us more permeable, where we can get out of ourselves and others can get in. Hmm. It actually changes the very shape of our soul. That is why we must experience loss and emptiness. We must practice letting go of things. We must suffer death to be able to enjoy life. Without grief work, and it is work, over an extended period of time, the soul remains self-enclosed, rattling around inside its own limited logic, and basically disconnected from the rest of the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I, that last picture, I get it now. Mm. When you don't embrace grief, you, your soul remains self-enclosed, rattling around inside its own limited logic, and basically disconnected from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So not only are you missing out of your own experience, you then don't know how to attune to other people who are walking right. through it. Right. Because you're, you just rely on your basic limited logic of what you read or what you saw on Oprah or what you, yeah. you know, and, and so now, not, now you're missing out on your own self, but you're not even serving people around you. Yeah. And, and when you, when you embrace this grief, you know, it, I think it broadens us. It broadens our hearts. It does. And it makes us more equipped to not just meet others' needs, but for us to ourselves to live a full life, very full, to be able to see both the glory and the loss is what it means to be human. It's what it means to be made in the divine image of Mm. God. Were you going to say something else? Yeah, I was just... (laughs) Go for it. So, you know, I've been waking up really early. Yes, you had a night last night. I did have a night last night, but I've been having nights like these where I like get up and I can't go back to sleep. And some people are like, oh, that's just because you're getting old, Mills. Um, No, I I think it's because I'm in grief. Yeah. And and so I'm, I'm really trying to... Again, this is not natural for me, but I'm really trying to listen to my body and instead of just laying in the bed, let me get up and do something. Not, you know, it's four. I'm not going to go mow the grass, but what is a practice or something that could be helpful? Because clearly my body is trying to tell me something. And so I get up at 4.15 this morning mm. and I just start writing. Again, I'm not a journaler. You know that. You know, I have 20,000 journals that have one. Two words <laughs> on the front page and that's it. I mean, I mean, I it, it, it sounds so locked up. No, you've just right, been locked up. You're so good about it and you'll write in a spiral and I'm like, no, I've got to have a moleskin. And yeah. You then I do particular. one page. But so I started writing last night and just even in light of what Roar just said, I wrote this, not even thinking to that. I said, it almost feels like I'm locked out of myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like. I'm standing outside of myself looking in, but 
but I can't get in. Hmm. And does it feel like the grief has locked you out? Maybe so. And so until you're willing to join and walk into grief, then that is your true self. Maybe so. And then maybe the door will open and then I come into this whole new, you know, I don't know about angels singing, but just (laughs) more texture, whole, more color integrated. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. It's, it's still weird to even as, even when as we're talking to process through, cause these are, these are feelings and channels I've never, I've just never gone down. I've never looked at. Well, and I mean, to, to Roar's point, which is the book that you've loved, but you've, and it gives you some language and some tools, but you still have to do the work yourself. Yeah. You can read all the books. You can know all this, but I know plenty of pastors who are drinking themselves to death every night. Oh, sure. That know all the things, but, but are locked out of their lives, just like you're saying. And I think that it is true to a degree that women through these stages of, you know, shedding the linus of lining of the uterus every month of going through losses of birthing and dying and children dying in our arms or dying in our womb or having a sister or friend who's going through these things. There is grief has grief has been more readily accessible to women because we've been oppressed for Mm. generations. Mm. And so we've, we've suffered because we've had to, um, And the gift in that is that we've adapted, we've developed community, we've taught, we've learned to talk about it um, a little more easily than you as a male has. Um, And I think that's, that's part of the revolution that's happening with this, like, you know, reckoning with macho man mentality, you know, well, yeah, I mean, you, because I mean, it's not whole masculinity. No, it's, it's not, not whole. It's not, you know, and, it's toxic. And you think, okay, at least this is the lie I bought about grief is I don't want to just sit around crying all the time. Yeah. Look at my wounds. You know, I, yeah. and the truth is I didn't cry until I turned 40, which I saw you cry one time when your I? grandpa died. And that's oh, when yeah. you were, we weren't 20, married though. Three. Yeah, that's true. That was a sad moment. Um, <laughs> it was. I know, um, but the way you just even said that feels like, yeah, that was a sad moment. Well, I, I, mean, I didn't mean to reduce that. You know, um, it's but yeah, that was the one time. Yeah, and yeah. and then I tried to kind of want to cry when Hattie was born, oh. but it just wouldn't come out. But because I kept hearing stories of you're going to cry when you see your baby, I may have gotten a tear, but it wasn't like. It wasn't like I have now. Like I, I cry now. Right. Your lip quivers. You don't have, yeah, you you can't talk. My throat hurts and all Because you're holding it in. Because I hold it in. I know. Don't do that. (laughs) Then I heard somebody talk about learning how to cry right. Like apparently there's a way to cry. I'm not there yet, but you can pray (laughs) for me. Maybe I'll get there. But even, even with dad, I mean, I'm, I'm at a phase now where it's not an everyday thing, but I never know what's song or what yeah something or mm -hmm. that's just gonna be like bam yeah yeah i um 
I thought about this. So the other book that I'm reading, I'm actually on the book launch crew for this book. This is Kate Bowler's book. Um, it's called No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. So it is a brilliant book where she basically goes through um, her journey with cancer and, and really confronting all of these lies and all these like things, narratives that we hear. You only love once and good vibes only. Make your bucket list. Um, seize the day best life now, you know, I'm going to live my best life now, manage expectation, think positively, all that kind of stuff. And so she really just talks about, listen, here, here is life. This is what we've been welcomed into. Um, so through her cancer, she says, this is so brilliant. And I know this is going to relate to some of you listeners through, uh, through her treatment. She says, I try a small experiment. I stop calling my regular rotation of friends and family, hoping they will call me back on their own, right? Because mm. we do this when we get in cycles of grief. We go, you know what? I'm going to quit reaching out. I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to see who actually thinks of me <laughs> for once. And this totally happened in 2020. I mean, I, I think all of us can realize how 2020 put the halt and it was either a resurrection or a deathbed for yeah. some friendships. Okay. So she says, I'm hoping they'll call me back on my own. This is not a test. This is not a test. The phone goes quiet, except for a handful of calls. I feel heavy with a strange new grief. Is it bitter or unkind to want everyone to remember what I can't forget? Who wants to be confronted with the reality that we are all a breath away from a problem that could alter our lives completely. A friend with the very sick child said it best. I'm everyone's inspiration and no one's friend. Mm. It is a lonely place to be, to be everyone's inspiration and no one's friend. You know, mm. we talk about these heroes who are surviving cancer and all this, or who've lost their parent or who've lost a child but we don't call them. No. We don't reach out to them. So so she says, I call my friend Steve, and I want to read this part because it alludes to what you said. I call my friend Steve. He's a widower about this second wave of loneliness. So it's she's encountering the second wave of grief. She says, I've been depressed before, but this isn't depression. Three years after his wife's death, Steve has been feeling similarly. We've spent hours on the phone trying to sift through the things we've lost and the things that remain. Gone is our innocence about the cost of love, astronomical, and our confidence in the future, dubious. There is considerable discussion about not wanting pain to make us narcissistic and allowing friends the latitude to describe accidentally bleaching a shirt as a, quote, tragedy. And we fully agree that we stumbled into the heart of a mystery, that there were moments of suffering that felt unmistakably like gifts there. He says there was something incredibly meaningful about the world of cancer, about embracing the full spectrum of reality. Oh, she says that she says there's something incredibly meaningful about the world of cancer, about embracing the full spectrum of reality. Even though I was dying, I have never felt more alive. And it is like this loneliness, but you also feel like 
in this season, like you've been given an opportunity to witness the very thing that you've been afraid of your entire life Mm -hmm. that you have feared from the moment you came out, even though y'all know, we all know we're dying. We all know it, but we don't always, all of us don't get to see death and destruction and fire and flight and fleet. We don't all get to see that so up close, you know? Yeah. And it feels like there is a gift in that, that it suddenly everything's altered. Everything is permeable. Everything is, we're all vulnerable. Well, I think it also addresses your um, priorities. Mm -hmm. What's really, what's, what is really important here? Mm -hmm. You know, for me, what was important was those FaceTime calls. Mm, yeah. Um, I still drive down I-35 south because that's where Lorena is. Mm-hmm. And I remember the different exits where I would get updates. Mm-hmm. And I remember my day would be oriented around the next update. Yeah, from the nurses and doctors. From the nurses. Mm-hmm. And so everything was in light of that. It wasn't... And I think... Yeah, I think it just it just changes your perspective mm-hmm. of what, you know, what is important. And then on top of that, if even if you're not I think it's important to understand grief so that you can grieve with those who grieve mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like I have tools now mm-hmm. to actually do what scripture says, mm-hmm. which as a quote quote professional minister, mm-hmm. you know, I would sit with someone in their grief. Mm-hmm. But I had never experienced it. And so now, I mean, just the other day I did a funeral and I realized in the moment of doing the funeral, probably not ready to do funerals yet. Yeah. It's acknowledgement number <laughs> right. one. As I'm surrounded by, mm. we were in a mausoleum and mm-hmm. it was interesting, but, but to be able to look into the faces of the people who were there and realize I so get where you're at. Mm-hmm. And my words to them was grief's not a process. It's a cycle. Mm-hmm. Because when we think of it as a process, that means it has an end point. Yeah. And yes, there's phases to it, but it's a cycle. And yeah. it's going to be out of order. One minute you're angry, the next minute your chest is tight and you're anxious. And here's the deal. There's always more to lose. Right. The only time you're not losing is if you're dead. True. So to be alive and to be human means there is stuff to lose. And stuff to gain. And I also want to say this. I think it's important that we acknowledge that um, that grief hurts. You know, there's that song that we used to sing. We used to lead. And it, you know, it's just quoting scripture. But or saw the Psalms. It, it, um, uh, oh, death, where is your sting? Mm-hmm. And I've really struggled with that line. Because yeah. I'm telling you what, it stings. Mm. I have the sense of loss that I have felt has been physically crushing on my chest, like aching. Yeah. And it stings. I know what the writer is saying philosophically. Sure. But I'm telling you right now, if, if you're with someone who is grieving, don't, don't quote that to them. Right. Because, because that's not, that's not helpful. Right. 
<laughs> well, not only is it not help, helpful, but that statement of that song is in light of the resurrection. Yes. And so for us, if we are going through death and the valley of the shadow of death, in a sense, we're not resurrected yet. Yeah. Because all of us, I think, I think it's really interesting when we try to, um, mm, segregate or fragment our human lives from the messiahs who went through life, death, resurrection, ascension. He went through that. That is the pattern for everything that revealed the divine cycle that revealed the earth. That that's, that's everything. Who are you to think you can just skip over death to the resurrection? Yeah. You don't get, you don't get to do that. None of us do. None of us escape it. And so I think that we have to give ourselves permission to feel the sting until we are on this side of it where we can look at the marvelous beauty of it. But you don't ask for someone to look at, at their death through the lens of resurrection if they're not there yet. Yeah. You know? Totally. And I don't think Jesus asked anyone to do that either. In fact, that's where we see him weep. He knew he was going to, he knew he could resurrect Lazarus. And he still wept. And he wept. He wept because he knew it would be incomplete to resurrect without first going through the process of death and grief and dying. And he honored death. He honored it. And so what does it look like to honor death as part of the cycle before resurrection, as part of the cycle of life? You know, we have to give it a blessing as, as doing a necessary work in us that it is a teacher, that it does lead us, that these are the prayers of compline, you know, as the monastics. And they know this because their faith allowed for this cycle. But I think for us growing up in a Protestant, evangelical, Southern Baptist culture, it was third day party all the time Yeah, that really didn't give credence and honor to the cycle, to the life cycle of Christ, you know? Yeah. Um, and I do think this was really great. Francis, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Spuford or Spufford, she didn't, Tish Warren notes this in her book, that for all the healing Jesus did, he didn't make a dent in the number of lepers in the ancient Middle East. He didn't make a dent in the number of women bleeding. He didn't make a dent in the number of people who died. Mm. Jesus gave us a glimpse of what the restoration of what the kingdom could look like, that there could be healing amidst death. But he didn't cure all healing in the ancient Middle East. And so as we work, we also grieve. And so that's just, to me, the invitation that, as we work through life and as we work and hold hands with great suffering that will continue to come, that we learn to grieve well. We're not gonna we're not gonna cure. There is no cure for being human. We are not gonna cure our divine reality. No, but I do wanna say this to you. Thank you for giving me space to figure this out mm. and to not give up. 
on me mm. in that because it would be easy for you to do that. So I just love you so much. Well, I believe in you. I've never quit believing in you and quit believing in your capacity to grow, to stop believing in you means I stop believing in me in some ways and in the, the work of God that God's doing in my life. And I'm not, I'm not going to give that up. Um, but also I will say, um, even though you've been off the rails in some ways before this, (laughs) (laughs) before this season happened of major external tragedy, you were going through so much internal pain, um, that I don't think you, you definitely didn't have language for, and I just wasn't prepared for, um, but when given the inf- the information and the opportunity to change, you started to change. And nobody, um, nobody does marriage alone. It can't be one person doing the work. And there are things in our marriage that we've had to grieve. Mm-hmm. And there have been losses that we've had to name. Um, and that we're praying and hoping for, you know, a resurrection in. But... Um, both of us are doing that work mm-hmm. and, and had one of us not been, it, it, it wouldn't last, you know, it just wouldn't. Yeah, you're right. And men out there just embrace it. Come to the dark side <laughs> for a little bit and don't, you know, don't, I know it's easy to, to pour an extra cocktail. I've done it. Mm-hmm. done it it feels that feels better in the moment than the pain and but that's not what's best mm-hmm. and in the same way I would say women make space for your men if you can and name what you need yeah you know each yeah. of us has to do our own work at naming what the ache is about and and being honest enough um and risk being alone in that space. You know, it can feel lonely to bring your needs to light because you fear rejection and you fear that you're going to not get what you need. But the truth of the matter is if you're not getting what you you need now right. by not naming, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, take your chances. You know? Well, and then if you don't name it, how do you, how does the other person know? We're not yeah. mind readers. Right. Um, yeah, we all just have a lot of work to do, especially given the years that we've had. And it doesn't look like the the world is slowing down, throwing us, you know, whack. It's just going to throw us a bunch of whack. Yeah. And we're, we're going to have to get really go. do get well acquainted with doing some interior work. Um, thank you for being open and honest and vulnerable on this podcast. This has felt, <laughs> this has felt very weird. Yeah, I know. But I'm proud of, I'm proud of an, you and I'm proud of us. Yeah, it is important. And I'm just really grateful for the work you're doing and just honor that. Well, thank you for modeling it to me. Mm. Cheers to grief in transition. As we wrap up, I just want to read this as a prayer Um, it's something that I wrote, gosh, in 2018, who knew what was coming? And it was just a word on, uh, courage in transition because transition equals change and change, 
uh, evokes fear and often grief accompanies those transitions, even if they're healthy. If it's a move, some of you have moved across the entire nation in 2020. Um, Those transitions are scary and you have to grieve and let go of what you're losing, whether it's a job, even if it's for something good. So in this transition, I call forth courage to stay faithful in unfamiliar seasons, to remain vigilant in the care of my body, soul, and spirit. Courage to push for rhythms of rest when life is frantic, to have a reserve well to draw from when spontaneity calls. Courage to lift my eyes above the daily chaos and see God's big beauty. Courage to handle the impending noise and needs of children and others with compassion. I, too, after all, am a begging child. I call forth courage to choose kindness. Its return comes with a reward of peace. Courage to foster contentment through unending gratitude. To jump into joy via splash pad, pool, ocean, or lake and to laugh at myself when I think I'm grown. I call forth courage. I call forth faithfulness, vigilance, rest, spontaneity, beauty, compassion, kindness, contentment, joy, and laughter. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.